0: Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Laurie Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport, Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome everyone to the Pelvic Health Podcast. It's Laurie Forner, and we are going to get right into today's episode. So the International Continent Society, or ICS, defines an overactive bladder, which we often shorten to OAB. Um, as urinary urgency, with or without incontinence, usually involves frequency and nocturia, which means having to get up at night to go to the toilet and empty your bladder. It can be a severely bothersome condition, feeling like you're busting to get to the toilet all the time, sometimes not making it, sometimes in public, it could be at home, going to the toilet often, sometimes every 30 to 60 minutes, waking up through the night to empty your bladder and not making it. For some people, it can feel like their bladder has taken over their life, and they feel like they can't leave their house. So it can lead to depression and a really decreased quality of life. We know that physiotherapy, including behavioral management, lifestyle education, and electrotherapy modalities, is first-line treatment and can make the world of difference for some people. However, that's a topic that we're going to delve further into on another episode, some people require oral medication and other medical treatment options. Oral medications are listed as the second line treatment and quite a bit of research has gone into this area. However, slowly the evidence is emerging regarding the negative effects of certain oral medications on cognitive function, such as dementia. Dr. Karek Falk is a urogynecologist, or female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgeon, who recently accepted an assistant professor of urogynecology position at the University of Nevada, Reno School of Medicine. He's been involved in researching recurrent UTIs, biofilm, fluid dynamics but our focus for today's episode was based on his research as part of a founding member of the Fellows OAB Task Force for Treatment Accessibility Advocacy Group. In this episode, Dr. Falk discusses general general information on OAB and the medical treatment options with particular focus on some of their recent research on anticholinergic medication for OAB and evidence of potential dementia risk. Without giving everything away, I think this is an area that we all need to pay close attention to. I hope you find this information as interesting as I did, and I would highly suggest following him on Twitter, which is where I found him. I'll include his Twitter handle, as well as a relevant research on this episode's show notes. Enjoy, everyone. Thanks for joining me on the Pelvic Health Podcast. Um, I found you on Twitter through lots of different ways, which seems to be where I've been finding a lot of um, medical professionals, which is an exciting space. Are you on there a lot?
1: I am more and more. And I was one of those, you know, growing up right when social media was starting in college. I always resisted Twitter, I didn't get it. But then the last couple of years during my fellowship, I looked into it, made a profile, but it's the best way to learn, especially med Twitter, which is a whole universe in and of itself, but to really stay up to date with research, to connect with people, to know people that are doing the same science across the country, to connect with patients in groups. So yeah, I'm I'm on it a lot now. And I'm also helping because I'm part of the social media team for um, OGS, which is the American Urogynecologic Society. So definitely dipping my toe into there. Um, but I also have to say your podcast has been such a great discovery. I'm glad you reached out to me um, to have this conversation. I've been listening over the past few weeks and have really learned a lot from it.
0: Oh, well, that's exciting to hear. We, um, I've had so many interesting people on, but that's also when I went, I looked at the information that you had that was starting to touch on overactive bladder And I thought, you know what, we haven't even talked about that yet, so I would love to get into that. So that's what today is going to be about, but before we get into it, I'd love to hear a bit more about how you got to where you are today and what you're doing now.
1: It depends on how much time you have, but (laughs) I'm originally from Southern California, Los Angeles area, Um, moved up to the Bay Area to go to school at Berkeley, worked for a couple of years, met my current partner now and then went across the world to Ireland, to the Royal College of Surgeons there for medical school. And then after finishing four years there, did my OBGYN residency, which is a very intense, but fun and uh, four years of learning packed time at Mount Sinai in New York, and then fell in love with pelvic floor medicine and pelvic reconstructive surgery. And I'm just finally finishing my fellowship up now at Emory University, which is in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: (laughs) So once you're finished, do you get to choose where you go? Like, what will you do?
1: Yes, and that's a that's a great question. And I know you have a big worldwide following and the American medical training system is, as I know, is very different than Europe, UK and Ireland, which is different than Australia. And yes, I'm finally at the point where I can go wherever, uh, which is great. That's a blessing. You're not kind of in this matching process to find where your career is going to go. But that also opens up so many kinds of possibilities of, what patients you wanna work with, what kind of um, environment. But I've been lucky to find a job, an academic faculty job at the University of Nevada in Reno, which is by beautiful Lake Tahoe and the mountains there with a really great team that I'm excited to work with to start their urogynecology services.
0: That is another one of those places on my list that I haven't been to, which the list just keeps getting longer and longer and conferences were a great way to tick your list off. And now I don't know when we'll get to do that. (laughs)
1: If there are, when we're going to get conferences again, first of all, but I would say if you weren't a, uh, what, 21 hour flight away in Brisbane, that you should hop on over Reno because it's such a quick jump from other places on the West Coast, but if you do make it back out here, you're more than welcome.
0: Well, there's a jet being created, so, you know. That time may decrease over time. Um, Okay, well, let's get into overactive bladder. And because, like I said, we've not really touched on it on the podcast before, and there could be people that haven't listened before, can you actually tell me what it is?
1: Yeah. And it's when people think about diseases and conditions, overactive bladder isn't necessarily that. It's just a set of symptoms that all people have, but especially women. And as an OBGYN, we really kind of focus on the women. But Um, I actually want to use a phrase I learned in Ireland when I was there that we don't use in the U.S. called "It's exactly what it says on the tin." Overactive bladder is your bladder is doing what it's not supposed to. It's squeezing. It's giving you urgency, frequency, going to the bathroom all the time. And a lot of people could also say, "Sure, like say you have to go to the bathroom a lot. Why is that such an important condition?" We have to think this really gets in the way of people's quality of life. Imagine having to get up. Sometimes I see patients frequently who every hour you have to pee and it's on the spectrum of you're going all the time so it's obnoxious but many people you actually have overactive bladder where you have such urgency that you don't make it to the bathroom in time and then end up leaking and having incontinence. For younger people it's embarrassing for work you don't want to get up all the time it impacts your quality of life and where you can go but for Older patients, and I deal with a lot of postmenopausal women in my practice, it actually becomes dangerous as well. Think about getting up three, four times in the middle of the night, that impacts your sleep, it impacts your cognition, but also you can trip and fall on the way to the bathroom, leading to fractures and other big issues. So it's a pretty huge impact on people's quality of life, and it's actually extremely common. About, I think, 10 to 50% of women report some sort of overactive bladder symptom. And as you age, that gets more and more common. So it's a huge amount of people that suffer from these bothersome symptoms.
0: And it doesn't have to do with just drinking too much water?
1: Actually, I've been listening to some of your uh, good podcasts. I think one of the more recent ones was with Kath Willis. She was talking about the amount of water some people drink because we think it's healthy. Although I do have to say, for so many women I speak with, water is your friend. And that's actually, we'll get to it, but one of the easiest things people can do to reduce bladder symptoms is just to cut out things that irritate the bladder from their diet and their drinking, like all the good stuff we love, like coffee, soda, spicy foods, alcohol, all those things actually irritate your bladder. And pure water, think about it, when you have a lot of water, you have nice, clear, dilute urine, and all of those kind of condensed compounds that are in really dehydrated urine, they're not irritating your bladder anymore. But that doesn't mean you should be drinking five liters of water a day. Most people are saying that you should drink water when you feel thirsty, and that's enough water for you to stay healthy. So yes, cutting down on water can help. But at the same time, water is your friend as far as the best thing to drink to try to prevent some of these symptoms.
0: Do we know other reasons that would lead into this happening?
1: When we get into the nitty gritty of it, the term overactive bladder generally refers to what we call idiopathic, which is our fancy word for saying, we don't know why someone has it. Most people, there is no underlying reason why. However, if you can imagine there's so many conditions that can still lead to those symptoms of having to go to the bathroom all the time, whether it's medications that either irritate the bladder or make more urine like for blood pressure or other things like that. Infect, like we wanna rule these out. There's, if there's a UTI, if you have an infection, that's gonna make you wanna to go to the bathroom more often. Any kind of neurological condition, Commonly things like MS, spinal cord problems, strokes, because there's such this complex pathway between the bladder and the brain, anything that's interrupted will lead to generally some sort of urinary problem too. Um, prostate issues in men, all kinds of things. And, of, and growths in cancers, although not the most common, sometimes we do find that that's the reason why people have these overactive symptoms. So generally, when we're talking about this, I'm going to refer more to the kind of your bladder is going crazy for no reason, but part of our job as doctors, especially when symptoms get worse and they don't respond to more conservative methods, great pelvic floor physiotherapy, we do want to really look to make sure we're not missing an underlying condition that we should be treating, and that's why it's there. Um, it's also frustrating for patients when I tell most of them that I don't know why they have overactive bladder, but we can try to treat that.
0: What are the like specific investigations in order to rule some of that sinister pathology out?
1: You really have to, I guess, tailor it to each patient. For me, I mean, I always just do a little screening for neurological problems that it might've come up. If it's sudden asking if any major trauma recently um. Like someone's in a car accident, something else happened, if they've lost, you know, they have tingling and numbness or signs of multiple sclerosis, like sudden loss of vision in their eye or trouble walking. Most people don't have those. If you have, you look at the urine to make sure there's not an infection, you look to make sure there's no blood in the urine. If you, you can also do cystoscopy or looking inside the bladder to rule out some of those conditions. So it's actually relatively straightforward to us to evaluate that. But again, for most people, since we're just trying to see, First, how they do in response to therapy. You don't have to do too much. We do do also some complex urodynamic testing, which actually puts the fear of God in some people, even though it's not that scary of a test. It's just a weird test, but it's kind of, I think like the EKG, instead of for the heart, it's for the bladder. We want to know how it's working so we can treat it properly, but it does involve, you know, catheters and computers and Chair that's actually a toilet, which I don't want to go into too much detail, but these are some of the tests that we don't scare people off. (laughs) We don't scare people off. It's not that bad, but there's just some of the tests that are in our arsenal to figure it out. But again, I think most people that I see tend to be a bit further on in their course with this. Is what should be is that primary care doctors, general OBGYNs, um, even some neurologists that deal with this usually can identify these symptoms, refer to physical therapy, talk about conservative measures. And if these don't really work, then they can come to us to start medications or work towards what we call even third-line therapies, which are more interventions that we can do. Like even people don't realize we put Botox in the bladder. It's not just for your face and help relax the bladder muscle or even do nerve modulation therapies. But I think the focus that we probably want to talk about here is really the medications because that's going under so much change now about how we really approach that.
0: Please. So let's get into it. What has kind of generally been the medication of choice and how it works and then how things have been evolving?
1: So historically, and I think anyone who's probably trained in medicine in the last 50 years know the term anticholinergic medications. They're also known as anti-muscarinic because they're talking about, I guess the process that's being blocked. But if you really wanna think about you know, the bladder, I mean, it's, a, it's an organ that fills with water. And what should happen is you drink, you do it throughout the day, your kidneys do what they're supposed to, they make urine, your bladder fills up with, with urine. And when it's full, your brain gets the message that it's full, you hold it as long as you need to, you make your way to the bathroom, and then you tell your bladder to squeeze and your urethra, which is the valve to open up. And that's how things should function. And again, no one thinks about their bladder until it stops working correctly. What happens with overactive bladder is that those nerves and muscles are squeezing when they're not supposed to. You're feeling like you're completely full when there's only a few tablespoons of water in your bladder. So what we're trying to do with medications is to quiet that down. It's a nerve and muscle problem. So it doesn't tend to be something we fix with surgeries or anything extensive like that. We're trying to calm it down. So not to get too much into the weeds. I think this is mostly tailored towards some health professionals as well. So (laughs) not to get too much into the weeds, but the bladder has nerve receptors on it. Um, The ones that we're targeting with these anticholinergics are called muscarinic receptors. And these receptors, when they're stimulated, by a parasympathetic nerve, tell the bladder to squeeze and to empty. So to calm them down, they develop these drugs that block those and then more or less relax the bladder. And these work, they're not the best. A lot of the treatments, I think it helps some people more than others. And if anything, it reduces the symptoms. It's really hard to get people back to complete normal with this condition but it just reduces that urge to go and kind of lengthen the time you get to the bathroom. But the downside is they don't work that great. Maybe like half 60% of people get a response. They have some unpleasant side effects, which is why tons of people discontinue them before they even really get a response, like dry mouth, dry eye, constipation. So if you think about it, you're blocking these receptors. They're not just in the bladder, they're in your lacrimal glands, in your eyes, your salivary glands, in your mouth, and in the smooth muscle in your gut. And there's all these varieties of these medications that have been tailored to try to only treat the bladder, but they're not perfect. So patients didn't really like these medications much to begin with, but it, you know, we thought, hey, if it works, that's great. We think they're really safe, so why not try it? And if not, we'll move on to some other therapies that we have. But recently, not so recently, we keep learning more and more about how these medications actually function outside of the bladder and on your brain and central nervous system. So there's a lot of longstanding research about how these affect cognition and even might have an association with developing dementia, which is kind of a scary word and concept when we're treating bladder symptoms. And just to note, there is a really good alternative medication that's out there now. However, it's still new. And at least I know in the United States, new medications are always more expensive because there's usually one brand that's using them. And that's called Nirobegron. And the brand name for that is Merbetric. And that works in a similar way. So instead of blocking that muscarinic receptor on the bladder, it stimulates this other receptor that it's supposed to relax it. So basically it's relaxing the bladder through another receptor and it tends to have a lot less side effects It's not the best for people with really poorly controlled blood pressure because there's a little cross interaction, but it's overall very safe and has the same to even better efficacy than some of these anticholinergic meds. But access is actually a big issue for our patients because of cost.
0: See, in Australia, or and knowing that I work generally in private practice, I've never really worked in the hospital, mirror seems to be a common one, at least in the last five or six years. Great. But you'll still see people with the other one. So then- Mm -hmm so we've got this newer one but we've got an old one that a lot of people are relying on and you said the issue with this older one is its effect on cognition and Mm -hmm. leading to dementia and i think you've been doing a lot of research within that haven't you
1: i've done i've been so i want to be clear i haven't done the specific research into what that connection is i've been that person that's i'm like the, the color commentator about what's going on i've been lucky to have a really good group of um other fellows in my same field from across the country who've come together to really study this literature and analyze how it really fits into things and how it should be changing practice. So I've been lucky to work with this great group of people to come out with some clinical opinions, some reviews of the literature, and actually looking to see what people are doing right now in changing their practice in response to this. But no, I'm, I'm not the one that did the major studies, but I'm happy to credit those and give you some, some references for the, the podcast side if you like. But there's a huge influx of data now that kind of all is agreeing with it that there's some association between taking these medications and developing dementia later in life.
0: So we'll put the links into the sh- in the show notes with some of those research um, articles. So, but, So what's happening? Why is this leading to changes in the brain? Yeah. And so how come again, not you, enough people are talking about it?
1: Right. No, actually, I mean, we'll get to that. There was this kind of burst, I think, in 2019, where there's a lot of media attention about it. But then I think it fizzled out in the popular media, but we're still talking about it a lot. And And to be completely honest, there's still a lot of controversy about exactly how to interpret this and what to do. And I'm very happy to lend my opinion to it. I mean, I already have for a couple of research pieces. But if you think about it, Again, this is a medication that blocks nerve receptors. And these receptors are present all over the body, including the brain and spinal cord and central nervous system. So what we really think is that, you know, these receptors, since they're blocked in the brain, they can lead to degeneration of these same neurons in the brain and impair memory. So there's actually, it's pretty, it's very well accepted in the last maybe decade or so that these medications, especially in older people, like over 65, acutely they're not recommended because they can lead to delirium, more trips and falls and fractures, um, cognitive impairment and mortality, where I know that um, the bodies kind of vary from country to country, but there's something called the Beers criteria that shows what medications are probably inappropriate to prescribe for older adults and they say this is one that you should probably avoid due to its high risk of preventable adverse outcomes. There's a lot of good science that shows that at least acutely with older people, you should probably avoid these medications. And also, I mean, again, I could talk about this for way too long, but anticholinergic medications aren't just for the bladder. Therefore, there's antidepressive medications, there's pain medications, GI medications, um, Parkinson's, all these kind of things that have a similar effect. I just happen to talk about the ones that that work on the bladder, although the bladder ones are some of the highest risk for impacting cognitive function.
0: So the ones that you are prescribed with that same medication but for other things it's still going to affect cognitive negatively.
1: Yeah, we can. So we knew that so okay we're already going to try to avoid these in our older patients if we can try to be as safe as possible. However now people have done these very large studies and they're not when we talk about the best studies that we change our practice on they're not the great ones where it's like you randomize people to getting one medication or another and see who gets dementia because that's not that ethical and also you can't really follow it and so we can't get the perfect data but these are huge databases in the UK that were looked at and seeing when in their past they were exposed to these medications and then seeing who basically developed dementia so a case control trials were the biggest ones among others And they found these increased in odds ratios. I think, so 65% increased odds ratio for people who are exposed to these medications for over between three months and three years showed an increased risk of dementia. And the interesting part is that's just, that's not just like right when they're taking it, they could have taken it 15 to 20 years before that time too. And the risk was still there.
0: Only for the short period of time.
1: Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a lot weaker when you look at, you know, the three months, but there still was some association there. And over three mm-hmm. years really viewed the cutoff of there really being a relationship. But the thing to me that stood out is again, it's not just you know taking it while you're older and that causing an acute change in your cognition. It's if I took these for years when I was younger and actually they showed that people that even stopped them remotely still had that risk profile. So are we exposing people or very healthy early in their life to something that could change how things go later?
0: Do we know, like if, because we'll see a lot of women who are mothers and they, you know, get an overactive bladder and they notice it with exercise or something specific and they do all the conservative management but it might bug them still sometimes and so medication is relatively easy it can be cheap especially that one type if they then try to take it for a few months it settle things down and they stop does that then mean those few months and they're younger will still potentially have a negative effect
1: there's no we way know. to ask? Okay. there's no we, there's really no way to ascertain that for sure but it shows that there might be that you know you were exposed and then there's an effect However, these also, these medications, and again, why people don't like them very much even before all of this is that it's not like you take them and then you're cured after three months of taking it. It's if you want the effect, you have to take it every day for, you know, maybe the rest of your life. So while a lot of people stop taking it because they don't like the side effects, some people are taking these for years and years in addition to their other medications. You have to do a lot of that. There's a lot of debate about this. And also the fact that people that, especially older people that, Get overactive bladder, that's also a symptom of early dementia. So is there this crossover of someone who has a brain that's more primed to those conditions? And that's why you're seeing these results in the studies. We don't know for sure. But again, when I'm thinking about this, and I do have some bias because I've, you know, we all know someone who's gone through the process of dementia. And it's a pretty, it's a horrific, not reversible process. And I've had very close family members go through that myself. So I'm a bit, you know, is it worth that potential risk to someone long term. One, I mean, I'm scared of that. But two, it's not like this is a miracle drug that you take it. And it's the only thing we have. It's the best drug and it works fantastically, because then you can be like, okay, maybe these risks are worth it if you're really improving my quality of life. But the fact that it's an okay drug and there are many other options available to me shows that we really need to be thinking about throwing these medications at people without at least a good conversation about what we know and being very sure that if it's not working to get people off because sometimes people get the pill and they keep taking it but it's not even really working for them in the first place so we're we've been pushing to try to you know say at least don't make this the first medication people have to take get more exposure and more availability of other alternatives like mirror background and those third-line therapies like Botox and neurostimulation that are great for patients but are a bit more expensive and a bit more invasive for people.
0: That is scary. So how do you, because you know that there's a whole, you, you're working on the body of literature, but there is a mm-hmm. very big cohort of medical professionals that may not stay on top of the literature, yeah. um, especially those closer to retirement. Maybe they're, you know, just relax. So, I mean,
1: we're in a, I'm in a world of, urogynecology, which is a sub, sub specialty, where I love it because there's such a tight knit group of people that we all talk about and have good, good discourse. And I'm still very young, you know, obviously in the, in the, in my career. Um, but no, like a lot of these medications are prescribed by primary care and, and GPs, um, adrenal OBGYNs, and there's so much literature everywhere to read that I, you know, it's hard to keep up on that. And that's actually, I've given a couple of talks recently to, kind of just reteach for and like how should you approach overactive bladder and advocate for your patients? And how can I demystify this data and make it so you can apply it to your practice? We do need to get the word out there a little bit more and work with people because I just don't think that, again, throwing these medications at patients, if, they're, if it's not maybe the safest thing, I see it, this evidence is enough where I wanna change my practice.
0: Mira Begren is called Mm Betmega here.
1: Betmega, okay. Yeah.
0: Um, Again, I know it's called different things in different countries, but in case people are listening, Mm -hmm. so that doesn't, because it works on a different pathway, it doesn't affect cognition the way that the other ones do, but I'm assuming it also has different side effects.
1: It does, but they tend to be a lot less and they're very, a bit more inconsistent. I mean, if you look at the label of any medicine, you're going to find 50 different side effects there, but- Nearly all patients I speak with don't really feel any different. I'm a little more suspicious just because, you know, when you think about again, this is getting very detailed. When you talk about beta receptors, those are sympathetic receptors. So there's also different versions in the heart and blood vessels and things like that, which is why it can cause a slight uptick in blood pressure. So we just have to be really careful with people who have poorly controlled blood pressure to make sure that's not an issue. I pay attention to headaches just to make sure that I'm not missing something like a hypertensive crisis or some people. You know, they have all these more vague symptoms. I think the classic ones, you still can get a little bit of dry mouth constipation, but far less than anticholinergics. And a few studies have shown that they're much better tolerated and discontinued at a less rate than anticholinergics as well, but work for the same,
0: work the same amount
1: for treating symptoms.
0: At what point, if someone's taking a medication and they don't have a lot of side effects, at what point do you or do they decide it's not enough and they want to trial different options?
1: It's really dependent on them. We try, I mean, I always try when starting a medication to bring them back in about, you know, two, three months to see if it's working. And at this point, we actually are, I'm trying not to prescribe those medicines. So I'm still want to see when they come back. If they can't take the alternatives or their insurance doesn't improve those alternatives and have to give um, an anticholinergic, then I'd rather see them sooner in about maybe four weeks. Because if it's not working, then what's the point of continuing it? Let's move on to something else. We've documented that it didn't work. And I would be remiss to not bring up the fact that (laughs) there are categories of anticholinergics and some are safer we think um, because there are a few that have been designed that don't actually cross the blood-brain barrier and go into the central nervous system so that makes sense like theoretically if these can't get to the brain they should be safer however there's people are researching that more we don't have conclusive evidence that they are safer but we're still when we have limited options we're starting people like look at least let's try to start you on use the trospium Um, which I think Enablex is one of the brand names for it, fesoteridine and Derefenacin. So hard medicines to say, but these are ones that are considered in that safer and we've called it a central nervous system sparing medication. So we still start those on people. wanna follow them closely because we just don't know enough to know if they're safer but it makes sense in theory if the drug doesn't get into the brain then it should be safe, right? But you know, lots of medical assen- assumptions previously have not been correct, so we always want to monitor those carefully too. That's another option for medicines.
0: So other, so we know that physiotherapy can help with this, and there'll be another podcast yeah. on the conservative management. So we don't have to go into it. So if they've tried and failed conservative management, mm-hmm. they've tried medication, and they still feel like it is an issue. Like, what are some of the common things that? is it just that they continually feel like they have to go to the bathroom every hour despite medication
1: and everyone's different with these symptoms too like mrs smith i'm making this up mrs smith might be i go to the bathroom 15 times a day and five times a night i can't sleep i can't work but mrs jones might be i don't go that often but every time i get the urge i can't make it to the bathroom and i completely wet myself or you know there's mixed incontinence type patients too where it's purely at night or it's there's a whole different constellation of what these symptoms can be and we always try to gauge the response as how much what has changed since we started whatever the therapy so physiotherapy are you having less leakage episodes have you gone from 15 times a day to 10 times a day have you or the big thing especially people have incontinence is that I call it the lag time between when you get the urge and when you your bladder just empties has that now gone from 10 seconds, where you're not going to make it to the bathroom, where you can hold it for a minute, maybe 10 minutes. That's a huge change in a difference between someone wetting themselves at the supermarket and being able to go about their life in a normal fashion. We also, and we talk in an insurance ease, which is did someone respond to a therapy where I can move on to a more invasive therapy if they need it? The numbers we like are more than a 50% improvement. So if you kind of half your symptoms and you, Generally, that's considered a success for a therapy. That's more considering when we're when we're considering putting, you know, neurostimulators into people, because you don't want to put an invasive therapy in someone if it's not really working for them. But generally, we always try to counsel people that, I mean, we want to get you a cure, but try to expect that we're just trying to really reduce your symptoms and increase your quality of life, especially um, in postmenopausal women. There's rarely where you get to a back to perfect. So always setting expectations for patients is important so they can still feel that their success there and they've regained control of their life.
0: What's a, an approximate percentage of people who will move on to further treatments like Botox or uh, neuromodulation?
1: That's also a difficult question. It's also something I was looking up recently for a paper and I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it's also tricky is there's there's a number that we would move people to if we could. And again, I'm working in a bubble of medicine in the United States, which is very insurance directed. And I know it's it's different everywhere, but a lot of the time you have to kind of fight in order to get approval for these procedures Um, or people just, if the first thing doesn't work, they kind of lose faith in it and then they just don't come back. But honestly, I think most, I'd say maybe half of patients are happy with medications if we get to that point. A lot of people are happy with physiotherapy If they can stick with it and listen to it and afford it. Cause it's one of those things like exercise, as you know, if you stick with it and you work with it, great. But the problem is a lot of people don't. So that that active involvement is a little bit tricky. Um, but I'd say getting the third line therapies, I don't know, for us, when we kind of getting people that are already difficult to manage a good amount of patients, because they're coming to us because they haven't done well with other treatments before. But I don't have a number for you. I can say though, that I know now from Kind of surveying a lot of the providers that we have in the country that a lot of people are trying to change their practice right now and wanting to get to different therapies but are hitting some barriers and actually implementing that
0: do you do a lot of secondary modulation in your practice
1: i do and i full well, I, I, disclosure, i say my practice but finishing fellowship i'm working under my mentors who are excellent um, physicians and surgeons who I do procedures with but in our practice which I'm working in now yeah we do a significant amount and I am also someone who's always been very skeptical of medical implants and these devices because I might mean, you actually hear about like the approval processes for them and if they're gonna be permanent if you can be able to remove them there's a lot of problems in the past with that however I do have a lot of belief and faith in these sacral neuromodulators because one, we always do a test first to see if it works for you. So either with a small surgical procedure, even the office, we put little temporary leads in to see if your symptoms improve. And if they do, then we can put the full implant in which is also fully removable. So if it doesn't work or down the line, if you need it removed for some other reason, it can be taken out. It doesn't tend to lead to much long-term pain or discomfort. And it really significantly improves symptoms for patients. Actually, mostly for people that have bowel incontinence that we do. say I've also... only seen two
0: people and they had bowel issues. and that's what. They so it's one of those where
1: they, they developed it for urinary issues, but then kind of found people had bowel incontinence issues that it worked really well for them too. And now it actually works better for bowel incontinence, basically reprogramming those nerves in the pelvic floor to to function better if they have some function there to start with. But you know, it doesn't work for everyone, but at pretty good success rates and long term it works pretty well. You don't have to take medications, um, and still pretty low risk considering it's a neural implant. Well the biggest thing that I don't think I've touched on is that I so always wanted every patient that I see, I always start by trying to destigmatize this. This is a condition that no one likes to talk about at brunch with their friends or at church or like over dinner because it's embarrassing and stigmatizing, like peeing a lot, bodily functions, things that involve the vagina, you know, aren't things that people realize so many women are going through. And actually I think there's some studies on that, only about a third of women with overactive bladder and incontinence seek care or even bring this up with their doctor. And 22% don't think of OAB as even a health problem. And I just always want to say that it's common, yes, but that doesn't mean it's normal. I think some of your other guests have said that as well. And by saying it's not normal means you don't, doesn't mean that just part of aging, you're going to now have to suffer with incontinence the rest of your life. It means there are treatments out there. You just have to look for the right providers that do it. And you can get some great treatments still in the beginning with your GP, with your OBGYN, and then just know there's great urologists and urogynecologists which kind of work together who treat these issues and can take you to those next levels of therapy so you can be dry not be going to the bathroom all the time and live your life to the fullest
0: thank you so much for joining me
1: of course thank you so much it's been great
0: this episode has been brought to you by always discreet head to alwaysdiscreet.com.au to learn more about bladder leak tips management and incredible bladder leak protection